Well, welcome back to our series on the apocalypse. Glad you're all with us. Those of you online, guys at Just Done, appreciate you studying with us. Thank you very much for including us. Uh, and it's just great to be able to get so many people together and have such an interest in studying God's word. So we are studying the apocalypse, which is means a revelation, a revealing. And we won't always get all the questions answered, so I'll just remind you again, every Friday, I'll do a podcast over at sowespeak.com and we will answer questions that don't get answered in class and then also just go off on some interesting things that I just don't have time to get to here. But if you have questions during class, this is the number to text them to. It's also on your handout as well and for you online, you should have a handout posted online as well. So let me say a prayer for us and we're gonna dive right into our study. Lord, thank you for the blessings you've showered upon us. We're grateful for the country in which we live and we pray for your hand to be on it. We pray for our leaders and pray, Father, that you would turn the hearts of all our leaders toward you, that this nation might be a beacon of your truth and peace and justice. Father, I thank you for everyone in the sound of my voice and I pray that you would be with us in our difficulties, in our triumphs, that Lord, uh, we would open our hearts that you might strengthen us to be your hands and your feet and your mouth to this broken and hurting world. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, I promised you that pretty much uh, every lesson I'm gonna hit these four views. And the way we're approaching, or the way I like to approach the book of Revelation is I'd like for you to be able to sort of walk around it, if you will. The goal is by the time we finish the book of Revelation, it won't be a major mystery. You may not have all the answers, but you will understand the main point of what's going on and how people have tried to understand this book for the last 2000 years. The primary way people have approached this book of Revelation throughout Christian history falls into four major categories. And some of you have already realized, some of these categories can overlap. You can actually have more than one opinion and they can go together a little bit. But these four views are basically grouped around answering a question. And the question is, when will the events in these visions take place in our world? So John is seeing a series of visions and he's been told to convey that information to the seven churches, and then of course, throughout history to all believers. But what's not so evident is the things that he sees in the visions and these events as we understand them and interpret the symbolism, the question is when will these things happen? Well, some Christians in history and some today hold what's called a preterist view, and that is that these prophecies, these events happen in the first century, or almost all of them happened in the first century. So this letter was written to early Christians, for early Christians, about things that happened to the early Christians. The second view says, no, it didn't happen in the first century. It's actually a roadmap, if you will, kind of a coded map of all the major events between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That's called a historicist view. It's a map of Christian history, and we need to interpret it to figure out what, uh, what's coming and what has happened. Third view, probably the most, well, certainly the most popular in America, is called a futurist view. And that says, actually, most if not all of the events that John is describing as we interpret the symbols are going to happen in the future. They haven't happened yet. And in fact, they'll happen in a seven year period in the future before Christ returns. That's called a futurist view. And then the symbolic view says, these events are definitely going to happen. This is not a view that says this isn't true. It says though, these events are going to happen, but actually like much of biblical prophecy, these events have happened, are happening, will happen. They're sort of recurring ideals that happen. And they may also happen in some special way in the future, but they are already going on. And so 
most of the views will fall into these four categories. And as we go through, particularly starting in the next lesson, you'll start to see some real departures amongst these views. Okay, so we are talking at, about what's happening in Revelation chapter two and three. And so John sees a vision. He hears Jesus, he sees Jesus, and Jesus says to him, write the words that I tell you to the seven churches. And the seven churches, which you'll see in just a moment, they were all founded about one generation earlier. And again, with all due respect to the preterist view, which would argue that the book of Revelation, John wrote that down probably in the 60s AD. For our purposes, I'm gonna assume he wrote it in the 90s. And if that's the case, it's about a generation after these churches were founded. So maybe 40 years after they were founded. They were founded by the Apostle Paul on a journey from 53 to 57 AD. And so you can see here he went all through, and these are Roman provinces or states, if you will. He went all through uh, these areas. And these seven churches are all in the Roman province of Asia. Today, that's uh, the western half of Turkey. But in that time, it was the province of Asia. And so John was living in Ephesus. He was imprisoned in Patmos, a little island off the coast. And so Jesus says, I want you to write to these seven churches in Asia, in this province of Asia. And here are the seven churches. Now, the churches are real churches, real city. That's not the only, those aren't the only seven churches that were there. There were a lot of churches in that area. So why seven? Why pick those? Three major ideas. One is the number seven, anytime you see it in apocalyptic literature, especially in the book of Revelation, which is a piece of apocalyptic literature, that's the style that it's written in, very symbolic style. And numbers mean things. And so the number seven is the number of completeness or wholeness. When you see seven adjectives, strung together, which I'll try to remember to show you that when I see it. It's talking about the complete description of something. You see seven churches, what is it representing? It's representing in some sense, the totality of churches. In other words, seven says completeness, everything. Well, one view is that all churches of all times fit into one of these seven categories. You might say, well, my church is an Ephesus church. We have great works, but we've lost our first love or our church is a Philadelphia church. We're doing everything right, you know? Whatever it may be, but that there are seven types of churches. Another view is, and this is the historicist view, these seven churches represent seven ages of the church. And churches in general have gone through these phases throughout time. The third view is these are written to seven churches and the seven means these instructions and this, these words of Jesus are meant to apply to all churches, all believers of all time. Those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but those are the three views. So if you think it's different kinds of churches, I put the description on here. Ephesus is steadfast. They have lost their first love, but they've held true to doctrine. Smyrna is being heavily persecuted and Jesus is encouraging them in their persecution. Pergamum has compromised their morals. They say they're Christians, but they've given in to sexual immorality and some idolatry. Those are the three that we spoke of in our last lesson, are those three. And if you think those are ages of the church, then Ephesus represents a steadfast church in the first century. Smyrna, the persecution from 100 to 313 AD when all Christians experienced bitter persecution. Morally compromising church, the time period of the building of the Catholic structure of the church. This is a historicist view. I'm not telling you this is the way it is, but this is a different view. And then in this lesson, we'll talk about Thyatira who is having difficulty with some teaching and doctrinally, and many people uh, of the historicist view think that represents the church, the Catholic church age, from the peak of the Catholic church in 500 until the Protestant Reformation, 
Again, these are opinions, and, uh, but this is the way a historicist would look at this. Sardis considered a counterfeit church. They look like they're alive, but they're really dead. And that is considered to be the time from Luther to Wesley. And again, I'm giving you multiple views. I'm not telling you this is the way it is. But if you have a historicist view, you tend to break it into ages. If you think it's different kinds of churches, these are the kinds of churches. Philadelphia is uh, the obedient church. There's nothing negative said about this church. It's considered to be uh, the great awakening from 1793 until today. And then Laodicea, there's nothing good said about this church. It is considered to be the modern materialistic church. So you may or may not agree with that. You may think actually there are probably lessons for all of us in every one of these letters. And that's why we're gonna look at each one of them. But I wanted you to be familiar in case you read something on the internet, you may see this point of view and you'll understand it's a way of looking at these churches. Okay, so let's dive in. So we were at Ephesus, by the way, the order of this is the order you would travel to these churches. So you start in Ephesus, the great seaport, and go to Smyrna, then up to Pergamum, which is the capital city of this whole area. And then you would move down to Thyatira. Thyatira is an interesting church. And what I wanna do is I'm gonna read the letter. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the location and some history. Then we'll read the letter and draw out. Uh, I think it'll become much more meaningful to us. So to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Jesus says, everything here is the words of Christ. These are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. This is not, by the way, I need to give you a warning. When you read the gospels, if you're used to cuddly bear Jesus, this is not cuddly bear Jesus in the book of Revelation. If, and by the way, as long as we're here, let's talk about this. So when Christ came, the Jews were having a really hard time figuring out, is Christ the Messiah? Christ means Messiah. Is the Messiah gonna be a suffering servant like Joseph in the Old Testament? Or is he gonna be a conquering king like David, defeating his enemies? And so they look at Jesus and they go, I can't figure you out. And they decided, oh, we'd way rather have a conquering king. So they're looking for a conquering king like David. What do they get? suffering servant. Jesus comes to serve, to sacrifice his life for our salvation. Well, guess who's coming in the book of Revelation? The conquering king. And in this mind-blowing way, the answer is yes, the Messiah is a suffering servant and a conquering king. So you're seeing conquering king Jesus, not cuddly bear Jesus. So Fasten your seatbelts, it gets worse. But he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what they call the deep things of Satan, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. So there's a little bit to unpack there, but uh, I'm gonna go and show you some background and we'll come back to the letter. But let me pause for a moment, question. Yes, um, what would the seven churches have looked like with regards to their congregational size, um, buildings, would they have met in people's homes or were they actually building church buildings at this point in time? Great question. So the sizes of the congregation are not known because they didn't take attendance, I guess, at that time. But and seriously, it's not known. There are an awful lot of scholarly opinions on that. And I'll just, we'll just save time and we won't go into that. It's very interesting work, but bottom line, no one knows. Um, in Ephesus, that was a city of about 250,000. I will say this, do you, if you remember when Paul was there, 
a generation earlier, remember, about 40 years earlier, he got run out of town because there were so many people following Christ, they stopped buying idols. Okay, that, if you're gonna impact the economy of the city, you probably have a lot of Christians, okay? So, but that's just one instance, but you could certainly draw that inference. So we don't know how many, it would vary, I think, from uh, place to place in terms of how big these congregations are. Where did they go to church? Absolutely went to church in house churches. And the reason for that is as persecution began, you couldn't really, I mean, you aren't gonna see church buildings on a big scale until 313 AD, until 200 years later, when the persecution stops. It's not like you wanna be in the middle of a persecution and it's against the law to be a Christian and like, well, we know where to find them. They go over there at 150th and Portland, let's just go round them up, you know? So they, they seriously, they didn't. They met in house churches, but they thought of themselves, and this is interesting, they thought of themselves as one church. We are the believers who live in Ephesus. Well, I happen to meet on Sundays over here at, at Joe's house, and you meet over here at Kim's house, but we are God's family. That's why you see the letters in the New Testament written to churches in the city of Colossae, Colossians, Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians. There's one letter written to all the Christians. They may have been in 20 or 30 houses where they were meeting, but they thought of themselves as one family. So not, no church buildings really at this time. Good question. Well, let me show you a little bit about Thyatira. Not a lot uh, in Thyatira because there's a modern city there today and it's on top of the old city. This is the remains of a temple in Thyatira. Their patron god, if you remember, I told you, each city had temples to all kinds of gods. They had the Greek gods. They even had um, what are called Anatolian gods. Think Turkish gods, indigenous people. The people there weren't Romans and they weren't Greeks, but they spoke Greek and they were ruled by the Romans and they worshiped the Greek and Roman gods, but they also worshiped their gods, their tribal gods as well. So you see all kinds of temples, but they would typically have a patron god or a patron goddess, meaning this is the god or goddess who specially takes care of our city. Thyatira's patron god was Apollo, the sun god, and he was the son of Zeus. So he was the son of the most high God, which is ironic if you think about it. But this is the remains of, of a temple. This is a uh, road, but these are retail shops. So this is Banana Republic. Uh, this is Zara. I mean, these are retail shops. And what you tend to see is you tend to see downtown and you tend to see what's left of that. This gives you an idea of how grand it was. This is a colonnaded street. Imagine there are columns all down this street. And when you have the columns there, you have temples or you have retail uh, beside it. I mean, this, is a, this would indicate that there were a lot of people there because that's a pretty big street, but not a lot to see. Thyatira is mentioned one other time in the New Testament. So I wanna take you to the book of Acts you may remember this, when Paul is going through this area, so he's been uh, to Ephesus and these churches are all starting to be formed, but he sails over to Philippi, which is a major uh, commercial center in Greece. And when he gets there, listen to what it says. So setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there we went to Philippi, which is a leading city in Macedonia. Uh, well, it's Macedonia. And it's a Roman colony. We remained there several days. And on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, they went to go find the Jews. There wasn't a synagogue there, which usually means there were not 10 Jewish men in that city. So not many Jews. But if there were any Jewish people, they would then, if there's not a synagogue, go down by the river to pray. That was a custom that they had. So on the Sabbath, Saturday, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we thought there might be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. These are, God, these are women who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're either Jews or they're converted. One of those who heard us was a woman named Lydia. She's, she's not Jewish. 
I mean, she believes in God, but that's not a Jewish name. From the city of Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple goods. She's a merchant. And so she's from Thyatira, but she's over in Philippi doing deals. She's a manufacturer's rep. And one of the things Thyatira was known for, which by the way, lends a lot of credibility to the truth of the Bible, is dyed cloth. And in fact, Thyatira had the recipe, if you will, for purple cloth, which was very expensive. It's a very hard color to make. And so he meets her and she becomes a Christian and he stays at her house and off they go. But Thyatira is mentioned. Thyatira was known for three big things. They had a lot of guilds. They had the electricians, they had the plumbers, they had all that. But they were known for bronze smiths, bronze people that made bronze statues and bronze utilities, shoemakers, and dyed cloth. And they exported a lot of dyed cloth. And so Thyatira was a commercial city. By the way, in Philippi, there, this is the place where it is thought that Paul met her. And so they built it up a little bit. Obviously, the seats weren't there at the time. And it might even be the place. So it's, uh, it's right outside the city by the river. And so there's a monument there attesting to that event probably happened in that place. And this Lydia was from Thyatira. So back to the letter, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is interesting. Notice what, that Jesus commends their works, their good deeds, their love, their faith, their service, and their endurance because they weren't well tolerated by the public at that time. But notice what he, he takes an issue. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. And I wanna talk about what, who's Jezebel in a minute. But this is really interesting because we talk a lot about tolerance in the church. And while we do, we are loving and kind to everyone, the thing that Jesus has an issue with is that the angel of this church, whether that's the pastor or it's the elders, are tolerating this woman, perhaps others, who say they are Christians, but they are teaching the people that it's also okay to worship idols. It's also okay to participate in the sexual moral code of the culture of the time. And so Jesus doesn't consider tolerance of certain issues a good thing. How do you know what issues Jesus was tolerant of and which he was not? I'm glad you asked because I wanna to talk to you about that. So when you look through the scriptures, and see what did Jesus get angry about? I mean, Jesus met a lot of sinners, right? And Jesus didn't really go off on sinners and say, oh, you're such a sinner, you're probably going to hell, you're absolutely useless. Of course, he never said that. He said, come follow me because the kingdom of God is here. And what they didn't know was he was gonna make it possible for them to be reconciled to God. And so, he left his disciples saying, go teach them to obey everything I've told you, be baptized, and you can be saved. You can be reconciled to God. But there were a few times when Jesus was not tolerant. And if you watch in the New Testament, there's Jesus, you'll see this in the writings of Paul, in the writings of Peter, in the writings of James, the writings of John, you'll see the same thing. The areas where they are not tolerant are where people are teaching things that aren't true and jeopardize people's salvation. So for example, suppose I come up here and I say, you've gotta look at the book of Revelation through a preterist view. It's already happened, people. And you might say, Terry, you're wrong. And I might be wrong. But that's not a basis to say, oh my goodness, you're gonna keep all of us from being saved because you happen to have a different opinion than I do about the book of Revelation. But there are some things that do affect people's salvation. And Jesus is not happy about that. Let me give you an analogy. You might send your child to, uh, let's say an elementary school, and you send your child to school, and your child goes to school, and they teach them something, and the child comes home, and you say, well, that's not what we believe. We believe that there's a God that created the earth, for example, or something like that. Well, you're, you're not necessarily upset. You understand that different people have a different view. But, if you send your child to school 
and the school is selling them fentanyl pills, you have a major issue with that, don't you? And so there are levels of severity. It seems that for Jesus, what he will not tolerate is someone leading people astray to the point that it jeopardizes their salvation. Does that make sense? So when you read this, you could reasonably say, why is he intolerant of this? But Jesus tolerated so many things with people. He did indeed, but not leading his children to death. And that's something he expects the church to pay attention to, just as a good parent would pay attention to that. And so who is this Jezebel that he's worried about? First of all, it may uh, probably not name Jezebel. That's a, that's a reference, it's an Old Testament reference. May or may not have been a woman and may have been several people. But you know something about Jezebel and this is why the name is chosen. Jezebel is telling people saying, look, I'm a Christian too and you know what? These idols aren't real. If you wanna to go to the banquet, you wanna to sacrifice to idols, you can do that. And by the way, if you wanna do the orgy at the temple when they do it, you know, it's fine. God's gonna save your soul. Your body's not that big a deal anyway. So in other words, this is likely what's being taught. The name Jezebel goes back to the Old Testament. Many of you know this. In history, we're now over 800 years earlier. So we're in the ninth century BC. You may remember from 1 Kings, the story of uh, Ahab, who became the king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria, and he married a girl named Jezebel. Jezebel was not a local girl. She was the daughter of Ethbaal. See the name Baal in there? That's like naming your child Christian. This guy's named after his God, his God is Baal. He was king of Sidon, he's a Lebanese guy. And so he began to serve Baal and worship him. And so Jezebel talked him into and was very adamant that we're gonna put temples to Baal all over Israel. In fact, we're even gonna set up temples to Baal on the Temple Mount. And she began to pull the people away. They still worshiped Yahweh, but they also worshiped Baal. And they also began to violate a lot of the commands in the Old Testament and be involved in sexually immoral practices, which were part of worshiping Baal. Ahab's considered one of the worst kings in history. Jezebel meets a grisly little fate. So feel free to read 1 Kings if you want. But when he says you have a Jezebel, the whole point is Jezebel in history tempted the Israelites to be unfaithful to God. Said, look, you don't have to give up God, you just have to add Baal. Apparently that's what was happening here to these Christians is you don't have to give up Jesus, you can also serve the gods of the culture at the time. And that apparently is a very serious deal to Jesus. And so the church in Thyatira has a lot of faithful Christians but they have this problem with what's called syncretism with the culture, um, compromising with the culture. In other words, bringing the culture into the church to where Christianity is not exclusively Christian, it's also accommodating the culture as well, in particular ways, in ways that Jesus thinks are very serious, okay? Next city, if you go about 40 miles on from Thyatira, you get to Sardis. Sardis uh, is, again, a major city of that area. And here's what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. The word of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. I want you to wake up. This is ironic, because I want to tell you something about Sardis' history. This is so embarrassing. So Sardis, old, old city. They're long before the Romans were there, etc. Sardis is like impregnable. The way that city is developed is kind of up on a hill, got a big, uh, it's like steep cliffs up to the top part of the city. I mean, you shouldn't be able to conquer that city. It doesn't take very many soldiers inside the walled city to keep out an invader. But it got conquered twice. And it got conquered twice because, not because it was impregnable, but because the guards were asleep 
and the guards were very lax. And so they just climbed up the walls and came in and took over the city. So it's like an embarrassing moment in the city's history. And so Jesus kind of plays on that. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Remember the gospel that you were told? Keep it, repent, meaning turn around. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. So I wanna stop here and I wanna talk about what is he talking about, uh, about how they're dressed. What he's saying is that you guys have become really complacent. You call yourself Christians and you think you're on fire for God, but you really, you're not. You become very complacent and you become very culturally compliant and you're just not pursuing your relationship with Christ. But there's some of you that still do. And notice what he says. He says, people who have not soiled their garments, their garments are not dirty, and I'm gonna dress them in white. In the book of Revelation, clothes means character. Clothes are a reference to your righteousness. And so saying that you're wearing white clothes, that means you are in a reconciled relationship with God, that you are obedient to Christ. You're obedient to the commands of God. Saying that you have dirty clothes means that you have turned away from obedience to Christ. And so you're gonna see this over and over again, and this is the first uh, occurrence of it. But when you see clothing, it tells you about people's relationship with Christ and their conduct, okay? Question. Yes, lots of questions about um, Jesus' concern about works. The letters to the churches emphasize works, and yet we are saved by faith, not by works, Paul tells us. Right. And so we have, I have several questions concerning that, and um, the idea that in Thyatira, they, uh, he was unhappy with Jezebel for eating food sacrificed to idols, but Paul specifically has taught that as followers, idols don't mean anything. And yes. That's an astute question. I'll answer that Friday. And the reason I say that is, I actually want to take a little time. That's a really good question, and the answer to that's really important. So I apologize. I'm gonna answer the first one, but uh, just for time purposes, I'd like to go into some detail on that. So I'll get that Friday. Back to faith and works. Yes, good for you guys. You notice that he says, I know your works. I know your deeds. Uh, think works as, I know what you do, what your activities are. And don't think works like, oh, you know, I gave $5 to the person who was, you know, begging on the street or whatever. Don't necessarily just think about it doing good deeds in that way. Think about it obedience to Christ. Does that make sense? Sometimes we think about good works as, well, did I volunteer at the soup kitchen? Did I you know, help somebody who needed help? Did I stop and help that person change their tire? Okay, those are all good deeds, don't misunderstand me. But don't think that's all he's talking about. He's talking about the whole gamut of being obedient to Christ. These are your deeds that you do. Okay, so let's talk about why is he saying, I'm gonna take an accounting of your deeds because you are not saved by your works. Here's the essence of the gospel. I'll make it short. If you have follow-up questions, I'll go into it on Friday. This is really important. We do not become right with God because we do the right things. Behaving in an obedient way to God, that's a good thing. Your life probably go a little bit better, but it does not save you. It does not get you into a right relationship with God, okay? That's called uh, self-help, that's called, I call that a remodel project. I'm gonna remodel my life and I'm gonna become obedient to Christ. Okay, that's a good thing, it's, but it's not a salvation thing. That's not what it means to be a Christian. You cannot remodel your life well enough, you cannot be faithful enough in your deeds that you can say, okay God, you have to save me because I'm such a good guy. You, you just can't be that good, right? And yet, there are people who try. They say, well, for God to love me, I have to do good deeds. Absolutely backwards, okay? 
Good deeds don't save you. You're saved by God's grace through your trust in Christ. You're not a remodel, you're an absolute brand new building. You're a tear down and a rebuild, okay? You become a new creation in Christ. This is Romans chapter five, chapter six. Uh, your old self died with Christ. You're raised to walk in newness of life. You're not just a better behaved person than you were before. You are a brand new person. Theologically, it's called regeneration, meaning you have surrendered your life to Christ. God has placed his spirit in you and the spirit, this is supernatural. The spirit is going to shape you into the image of Christ. You have a part to play and that is, I am committed to you and that's a, remember Jesus, if you wanna come after me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me every day. You make a decision, I'm your woman, I'm your man, I'm following you today. Am I doing it perfectly? No, I confess my sins and the blood of Christ covers those sins. But I'm always your man, I'm always your woman and I'm right back following you. That's what it means to be a new creation in Christ. So where do works come in? Enter James. The book of James says, look, you say you trust Christ. The only way I know you trust Christ is if you are a new person, the outside is going to start to change. You will do different actions because you are a new person. You're not saved by those actions, but if you say to me, I trust Christ, but none of my life has changed, James would say, it doesn't sound to me like you trust Christ. Doesn't sound to me like you've sacrificed your life. I'm not talking about overnight, you trust Christ, the next day you never do anything wrong. I mean, there probably are some denominations that would say that, but I mean, that's not the way this happens. You go through this process of the Spirit making you holy, making you like Christ. Okay, so bringing us back. The idea is Jesus can judge you by your deeds, by your obedience. Again, I wanna expand our idea of what a good deed is. It's obeying Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus Christ in every circumstance. That's good deeds. Whether it's persecution, whether it's prosperity, whether it's your giving, whether it's your Bible reading, whether it's your compassion to others, whatever it may be, all these things are your works. Jesus can say, I look at your works, I see the reflection of what your heart is. Does that make sense? So you're not saved by those works, but as James will say, show me your faith by your works. If you really are new, you will begin to see the outer person become new. So great question. So Sardis uh, has some people who are uh, staying true to God, but there are an awful lot of people whose faith is dead. They're kind of a shell. They may still act good, Remember, I know your works, you have a reputation, and this church probably had a great reputation in town. But he says, you're actually dead. Churches die from the inside out. And most of the time, Christians die from the inside out if they're going to die. If you're gonna lose your faith, it typically isn't, it starts inside before you ever see it outside. And that's what Jesus is saying. And that's what's happening here. So Sardis, uh, has a, this a temple to Artemis. This was a grand temple at the time. This is the remains of a Jewish synagogue. In Sardis, there was a big Jewish. Remember in Thyatira, there weren't even 10 Jewish men there, or they would have had a synagogue of some kind. But here, they have a big synagogue, very nice, uh, very well done. This is a little later than first century, but still, uh, that's a very nice synagogue. Again, you see retail shops, all these little inlets here are retail areas, and that's what tended to remain. They would have had stone walls, and they would have had awnings over the top with openings so that you get some air in there. But it would have been, you can go to Jerusalem today, you'll see this exact same thing. In fact, go anywhere in the Middle East and you'll see this exact same format. This also, retail space, you can see the colonnades on this side, and all of these were stores. There were huge Roman baths there. So when the Romans came in, they would bring, uh, the Greeks brought the gymnasium and the country clubs and the Romans came in with public baths, built a lot of public works buildings, a lot of maps projects there. Uh, and so this is one of them. And they are magnificent. I mean, the rest of it doesn't survive, but it's amazing that the facade has survived. 
And so Sardis is rich, it's a commercial center. But in AD 17, so AD 17, so it's a long time before this letter, but it's right in the middle of the, the New Testament era. There was an earthquake that almost destroyed Sardis and Philadelphia, our next town. And so they had recovered uh, around this time. And he says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. He says, and the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. In other words, sometimes you, you talk about getting a crown, a victor's crown. Other times you get white garments that says, you are completely innocent before God. The blood of Christ has washed your clothes clean. It has washed your life clean. It's a beautiful uh, image. Okay, 30 miles southeast of Sardis, we get to Philadelphia. Philadelphia was founded by a guy like 200 BC. This is way back. His name was Attalus Philadelphus. And he was called Philadelphus because Philadelphia in Greek means uh, brotherly love or someone who loves their brother. Attalus so, was so good to his older brother and loved his older brother, he was nicknamed Philadelphus. He founded this town and they called it Philadelphia. And so this town, it was big in uh, agriculture and they were also, uh, so they had a lot of grapes. Their patron god, by the way, was Dionysus. Dionysus or Bacchus is the Roman equivalent, was the god of wine, the god of partying, the god of you know, drunkenness. And so Dionysus was the patron god of this city. It's like, you know, what, what happens in Philadelphia stays in Philadelphia. It's one of those kind of towns, right? You would go there to party. He said, look, I know what your works are. And behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, so they're a minority there, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So there's persecution happening here toward those who confess Christ. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and they are not. Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word and endured, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Now, if you're a futurist, you think the hour of trial or tribulation, you translate that, same Greek word. The hour of tribulation, I'm gonna keep you from that. That's one of the reasons that futurists say there's a rapture and Christians are going to be spared. Faithful Christians like the ones in Philadelphia, when the great tribulation is gonna happen in the future, this is one of the reasons futurists say probably the whole church is gonna be raptured. All the faithful Christians will leave before all the bad stuff happens. And this is one of the reasons. Now you may say, surely Terry, there's stronger evidence for the rapture than that. No, there's really not, but that's next week's topic. But I wanted to point out to you that these are little clues that the different views use to substantiate their view. He said, I'm coming soon, so hold fast to what you have. For the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And so this is mostly positive. This Philadelphia is uh, uh, one of the churches that says, look, you don't have a lot of strength, you're being heavily persecuted, and yet you will not deny that you belong to me. And that's a powerful, powerful thing for Jesus to say. So mostly positive to Philadelphia and Jesus saying that your deeds and your obedience have endured despite persecution. So this church is uh, in the middle of a town, and so there's not much there, but there's a great uh, Byzantine, which is a few hundred years later, fortress there, some sarcophagi, this is caskets basically, from that era, from the era of the writing of this. And then uh, there again is the letter to Philadelphia. I wanna move on though, and let's get to the last church because this church is the one that people know a lot about. So from Philadelphia, if you go 45 miles southeast, you get to Laodicea. Laodicea is part of the Tri-Cities. I don't know if any of you have ever lived somewhere where they had the Tri-City area. It's like so most of you are going, no, never heard of it. Well, I used to live somewhere where there were three cities close and they, they're chambers of commerce. We're the Tri-City area. You should move your business here. Well, that's what this is. Colossae, 
Heropolis and Laodicea. You see them all here. And they're on either side of a valley. And Laodicea is the most important and the biggest and most successful town of those three. This is hugely rich area. They uh, are on the postal road, which is going this direction. So they're on the postal route, which means they get all kinds of official business. But Laodicea is also 100 miles dead east of Ephesus, right up a valley. This is where all the trade caravans went. Laodicea filled with outlet malls. I mean, this place is a serious commercial center and they are, the, they are rich. They have wealthy merchants, the town is rich. In fact, there was uh, a, and this is important to know when you read the letter, so this will make the letter make more sense. In the 60s AD, just 30 years before this, this whole town was destroyed by an earthquake and several surrounding towns. And so the government, the Roman government said, we're gonna give you some money to rebuild. Think FEMA, right? FEMA comes in and they're gonna give you some money to rebuild. Laodicea said, no thanks. The wealthy citizens of Laodicea rebuilt the whole town. It's like, we don't need any help. We are rich beyond belief. Keep that in mind. And here's what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write this. The words of the amen, the faithful and true, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, meaning I see your heart, I see your deeds, I see your obedience. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. What's he referring to? That's true. That town, not the Christians necessarily, but that town was, we don't need any help. We have tons of money, we rebuilt our own city. Very materialistic, very proud. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, let's stop for just a second. Remember I told you that clothes were righteousness? If you had white clothes, that means you were righteous. If you had dirty clothes, it means you were not obedient. What do you think it means if you're naked? That's not good. I mean, in many senses. But, I mean, in symbolic terms, to say you're naked means you no longer are Christians, effectively. In other words, you no longer are recognized by Christ. You are so materialistic, you have so departed from the way that you don't even have any clothes. So you see that the uh, symbolism here really tells you something. He says, if you've got money, I'll tell you what you need to buy. You need to buy gold refined by fire. This reminds you, remember what Jesus says? Store up treasure in heaven. That's what he's saying. You think you're rich. You're not rich in anything that's going to last. And so he says, you need to come to me so that you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourself. In other words, repent, turn to Christ and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. I will give you salve to anoint your eyes. It's another play on something that uh, Laodicea was known for. Laodicea had a big university of medicine and I know it's not quite the same as it is today, but they had come up with an eye powder that you made into a little salve called Phrygian powder. This is in secular sources. Okay, all, everything I'm telling you about these cities comes from sources at the time, but they're non-biblical, they're just secular sources. They were known for what's called Phrygian powder, and this is an eye treatment for the many eye ailments of the time. And so when he says, you think you can see the world so clearly, but you're actually blind, and your medicine won't cure you, you need to come to me, and I will make it so that you can see. I mean, just, it's just striking parallels here with what he's talking about. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Change your ways, turn back to me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. 
This verse is usually pulled out of context and just used to be speaking to everybody. And that's true, Christ is available to everyone. But in this context, what he's talking about is he said, you know what, I don't even have a key to your church. You guys are not faithful at all, but I haven't left you. I'm still knocking at the door. If you will let me in, if you will repent, this church will be vibrant. You can still turn back to Christ. And so that's what he's talking about. He says, I'll come in and eat with him. In other words, have a familial relationship and you can eat with me. This town, magnificent. Not a lot left, there are a lot of earthquakes in this part of Turkey, by the way. And a matter of fact, most of this area was destroyed in the Muslim area. I mean, just devastated by earthquakes. But you can see the colonnaded streets, how big the streets are. Look at that, another huge uh, street. Massive remains of temples and a lot of them. And so you can see that uh, this is a massive temple. And again, these are the Roman baths or what's remainder of the Roman baths there. That's one of two theaters in Laodicea. I mean, this is a very rich place. This is the uh, second theater. It hasn't been excavated very well. But I wanna show you something in the background. Heropolis is over here. It's on the other side of the valley. But you see that white stuff? You can see Heropolis from anywhere because this is what Heropolis looks like. These are limestone deposits. I mean, a whole, a whole cliffside uh, from the springs, from the hot springs. And so this is what Heropolis looks like. Well, one of the reasons that they talks about Laodicea not being hot or cold is the one thing Laodicea didn't have was a water supply. And so they had to build an aqueduct six miles south to a town named Denizli, and they piped their water in, basically. So you don't get these cold springs, Rocky Mountain spring water, you know? You don't get that there, which is awesome. What you get is water that's been flowing for six miles in the sun, and you just get room temperature water. And so when he says to them, your faith is neither hot nor cold, it's just, he's just playing on the idea that, and by the way, your water's neither hot nor cold. And they go, I know what you mean, and it's not very good. And he goes, I know, and neither is your faith. I don't want a lukewarm faith. I want a faith that's, that's either hot or cold. I mean, it's an interesting thing to say. Jesus would say, and this is really interesting, think about this. He says, I'd rather your faith was hot, on fire for Christ, that you followed me. But instead of being lukewarm, I'd rather you weren't a Christian because you think you're Christian and you're not even slightly following me. And I would say to you, that is, that's true. We talk about our culture. I'm gonna go on a little rabbit trail. Our culture has become post-Christian, meaning you now see generations of people who grew up, didn't go to church at all. And many of you, even people that aren't Christian, well, they at least know the, about the Bible a little bit, and they probably went to Sunday school when they were kids. You now have a post-Christian society. A whole generation grew up and go, I don't know anything about the Bible. I never went to church. Personal opinion, I'm really happy about that. Because Jesus said, I'd, and this is my experience, I'd rather talk about Jesus Christ to someone that doesn't know anything about him than one who says, oh yeah, I know about Jesus, I'm, I'm a Christian, Laodicea, but aren't. And that's what he's saying to them. And I think that's why Jesus says, I'd rather you be on fire, but if you're not, I'd rather you not even believe in me than to think you do and not. And that's it's just a powerful statement. He has nothing positive to say to Laodicea. But I also want you to notice, he says, but I stand at the door and knock. Turn back to me. Jesus' love for us is overwhelming. And if you ever find yourself saying, I once was following Christ and I have fallen away or my life went a different way, I don't think Jesus will take me back. Don't ever think that. This is a great example that Jesus never gives up on you. Never gives up on you. Question. Well, I was just gonna comment that I thought one of the really powerful things about 
being there where we where I took those pictures uh-huh. is that you can sit there in that theater and you can see the hot springs on one side and you know that the cold springs are on the other in the town that you can see. Uh-huh. And there you're sitting with this incredible town that's being, ex- it was being excavated while we were there, the, all those pillars being brought up and the two theaters and everything around you and they appear to have everything and then you're looking out and you realize the hot springs right there and the cold springs on the other side and what did Jesus have to say about this? Right. Yeah, it just fits so well into the geography. And Jesus does that in our lives too. I think Jesus contextualizes himself to our lives. I think you'll often find Jesus enters your life where you are and the gospel speaks to you where you are. Uh, that's, it's a powerful example of that, that when you are there, you go, oh my goodness, this must have hit them like a ton of bricks because it really is their situation. Okay, do you think it's a coincidence that the church whose name means brotherly love is also the church that Jesus has good things to say to? Um, yes, I do think that's a coincidence. Just, just an opinion, that's an opinion question. But yes, loving your brother is a good thing. But because your town is named Philadelphia, uh, I'm not sure that means you're a godly town. But I know that you Eagles fans are gonna disagree with me on that, okay? Go Eagles, go for it. Yeah, they're looking good this year. Um, In the Sardis letter, there's a comment about never blocking out his name from the book of life. Can you speak to that? Uh, Yes, I will speak to that on Friday. And I'm not trying to duck it, but we have three minutes left in this lesson. I'd like to go into that whole idea. What is the book of life? And is your name in the book of life? And is it written in pencil? Can you be erased in the book of life? This has profound implications to what's called the perseverance of the saints. Can you lose your salvation? I don't know if I can wrap that up in two minutes. So Friday, I'll talk about that a little bit. Well, let me just put a a little bit of a bow on on the churches. I hope that you will now be motivated. Go back and read these letters and read these letters as though they're speaking through the ages. Jesus is speaking to us. And I don't mean by that, read it as he's, He's uh, telling you, I have this against you, I have this against you. But hear those as like you'd read the gospel. Jesus is speaking to us and he's encouraging us. And like I say, the fact that he says, I'm standing at the door and knocking, don't ever think you're too far away. I know exactly where you are. I know you, I know your works. I know the trials in your life. These letters are, are just powerful. So please go read these words of Jesus. But you'll notice the things that Jesus commends our faithfulness. How many works are you doing? Never shows up, does it? Are you being authentic? Is your faith acting itself out? That's what Jesus commends. Are you a rich church? Are you able to do a lot of good deeds? Are you a poor church? You can only do a few good deeds. Doesn't matter, does it? It's all about faithfulness with what you have. If you've been given much, then by all means do much. If you've been given little, then by all means use what you have. Jesus commends us for acting out of what we have, not what we don't have. What are the things that Jesus is pointing out to us? Sexual immorality, in other words, engaging in the morality of the culture, following after the gods of the culture, not so much denying Jesus, it says I can have Jesus and I can also keep my greed. I can have Jesus and I can also keep my grudges. I can have Jesus and I cannot have compassion. And he says, you can't worship those other gods. Your allegiance has to be completely to Jesus. Materialism in Laodicea is one of the great gods of our culture. It's one of the great temptations. But Jesus says, you have not denied my name. You have continued to repent and come back to me. And that's what I wanna encourage us to do. We are just like the people here. We have our temptations. We turn off the path or step off the path at times and Jesus is there saying, come back and follow me. And that's the essence of the Christian life is always turning and back to Jesus Christ. Well, next time we will begin chapter four through 19 is the tribulation. And so after this vision and these letters to the churches, he's going to see another vision and Jesus is going to say, write what you see. Well, when we begin that, 
Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. And starting next week, you're going to see what the tribulation looks like. And here's the interesting question. Is there going to be a rapture? And if so, will you get to leave before the bad stuff happens? And that's what we're gonna decide next week for those of you that are still here. <laughs> I'll see you then. <laughs>